I was up too late yesterday. I was too involved in the lacrosse uh, championship, or the, excuse me, the lacrosse uh, all-star game, and so I forgot to um, plug in my iPad, um, and so this is called paper, and I'm going to be preaching from paper today. And I may have to use my glasses because it's not as bright coming out at me. So uh, here we go. Um, There was this high-ranking official in uh, the Middle East. He was an incredible leader, a truly incredible leader. He was courageous. Um, He was an accomplished soldier. Um, He was also like a Renaissance man. He was a musician and a poet as well. Um, He was a brilliant policymaker, and the people of his kingdom loved him. He was both wealthy and very generous in his wealth. And one day, he saw another man's wife. It was actually the wife of one of his loyal generals. And he was overcome with lust and power and then violence. He summoned his authority and then the woman... And he had his way with her. He violated her. And then when she was with child, he doubled up on his abuse of power. And he tried to do it in a sneaky way where he would arrange for her husband who was at war to come back for a conjugal visit. But his, this soldier was so loyal to both him and the troops that he would not consummate that conjugal visit. And he slept outside. And so then when that general that went back to war, this official gave order through a tactical move to murder that man. All to cover his sin and his brokenness. And then he took the widow as one of his wives. It was in a time where Men could have several wives. And for almost a year, he did absolutely nothing about it, pretended it didn't even happen. And then later, his friend, who was another government official, kind of a spokesman, he was kind of in the cabinet, if you will. The spokesman wanted to confront the official, so he did it in a kind of interesting way. He told him a story that was fictional, but not in a way that the official would know that was fictional. He relayed this story, that there was this rich man in the kingdom, and he had plenty of cattle and lambs. And there was a poor man who had one lone ewe lamb that he loved. It says he even loved it like a family member. That rich man stole that poor man's lamb and made it its own. The official, with some kind of block in his brain, said, he was, he, well, he was enraged, and he said, this is what needs to happen. I adjudicate this from on high, that there must be a reparation of four times to the poor man from the rich man, and that he must be punished. And then Nathan, the prophet of Israel, looked at King David, the king of Israel, and said, you are that man. 
the official con- translation is, you are the man, which doesn't really connotate well in our day. You are that man. And that is when David finally repented, came clean on his atrocities. And that's when he wrote Psalm 51, which is before us today. And I'm going to read it. It's a little bit of a longer psalm, but it is worth the attention of your heart and your ears. Remember that in the psalms, those little kind of taglines in the front are actually part of the inspired Word of God, unlike they are in some other places. So verse 0 starts, To the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he went into Bathsheba. And he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you alone have I sinned. And done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words and blameless in your judgment of me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of my salvation. And uphold me with your willing spirit to do so. Then I will teach transgressors like me your ways. And sinners like me will return to you. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation. And my tongue will sing aloud for righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. My mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice. I give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. I'm too good to Zion, the kingdom. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in our right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings, and bulls will be offered on your altar. This morning, we have this story from Samuel and this this lyrical artifact before us of David after his utter moral collapse and his response to David's loving rebuke. It's a psalm about forgiveness and not really about the forgiveness I talked about with the kids with one another, but our forgiveness with respect to God. David wrote, and Israel preserved 
this psalm for our singing, to tune our hearts and ears to the mercy of God, to show us how to be cleansed from our our foulest acts, liberated from our worst deeds and shame, and pardoned from our damning guilt. And it is a gift to us, an ancient gift to us. But let me modernize for a second. I've actually shared this illustration probably two times in the 11 years I've been here, and I'll probably do it again to get used to it. Anybody use method products, method soaps and things like that? Three of you. Okay, well. They had a campaign about 20 years ago, and it was called Come Clean. And there's an image of it, I think, here. Okay, so what the deal was, was um, that that it worked like this. After typing in a confession or a scruple or a dirty little secret, your sin would appear on that left hand, and then you hit the button, and the method soap would come out virtually, and you would virtually have it cleaned. Millions of people used it, both from the trivial to the tragic, and marketers loved it. There were things like, one of my favorites was, I don't really like my mom's chicken pot pie. There was one, I'm the one that burned down the garage accidentally. There was another, I lied about you and the money and who I was with. Design and PR people just went nuts about it. Method absolves sinners, a worldwide confession booth, Come clean, genius, simplicity. And the tagline for the campaign was people against dirt. Method tapped into a universal need to come clean. And it exposed our deepest longing to be forgiven. Our passage today explores what it means to forgive and how it plays out. Psalm 51 gives us at least three ways in in which it kind of defines or shows us what forgiveness is. There are probably more in Scripture, but but this is how kind of Psalm 51 deals with this issue, and they are pardon and purification and peace. We'll start with pardon in verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. This is almost pre-pardon. It's owning the fact that you need pardon. Against you, you alone have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you're justified in your assessment of things, blameless in your judgment. This is expressing that need for pardon, for the absolution. He's guilty, and he's finally admitting it. And that's always the first step in receiving pardon, knowing you need it, and then telling on yourself, owning you need it. Then it moves into verse 9 where it says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out my iniquities. Deliver me from my blood guiltiness ever before you, O God. God of the one who can save me from my blood guiltiness. David is just asking for his record to be expunged. He's asking to be pardoned by God. 
Because in all of it, and it is a wicked sin against David and Bathsheba, the foundational sin or the, 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 the first sin is the utter um, scorning of God's love and his law and his love and his law to protect Bathsheba and Uriah. That's the wife and the general. And now he's able to admit it and begs God to just blot it out, make it go away. And it assumes that this is the kind of God he serves and will do it. But it's not just about the pardon. It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's a purification. You see this in Psalm 51 and verse 2. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin as well. Like Eugene Peterson's, well, launder it out. Behold, I was bought for, brought forth in iniquity. And in sin did my mother conceive me. At the very core of, the, of my life, I have iniquity. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I'll be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Sin leaves a stain. And that's why it brings up this image of hyssop, which was um, uh, uh, used for cleansing wounds, especially among lepers. Sin stains, and you get this. You know the yuck of it all. The disfiguring and the discombobulating, disorienting realities are real. There is a pollution to it. David is, is like a prefigured Macbeth, right? Like trying to wash out his royal hands with the blood of, uh, of, on them. Out, out, damn spot. That's what he's doing. By the way, you know there's like several studies that say that we have um, a compulsion to wash our hands after we lie. I'm watching y'all. You wash your hands. It's either true that every culture that I know of in the world has some type of cleansing ritual and everyone's insane. Or maybe, just maybe, we have an instinct to know that we must be cleansed. When God forgives us, there's a pardon and there's a purification. But that's not all. There is peace. And you know this, there is a turmoil, internal and external, when we do wrong. You know the experience of a racked conscience, if you're lucky. You know the anxiety and havoc of knowing that you've done wrong. You know what it is to lie about a lie to cover a lie. We all know this. David lived for eight to nine months as he hid his sin from Bathsheba, uh, with Bathsheba and Uriah. He finally comes clean by saying, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. And if any of you have struggled with the point of struggling with whether or not you can confess something or not, you know the liberation of the settled heart, of God's sweet wisdom that is deeply painful because you expose yourself, but a deeply healing. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you broke rejoice. Renew a right spirit within me. 
Don't cast me away from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of the salvation, your salvation that you've given me. And uphold me with a willing spirit because you are willing to do so. He's praying that it wouldn't just pardon or purify, but it would bring peace. It's not just clemency and cleansing. It's restored communion with God and with his mirror. That he would be whole. God just welcomes a more beautiful and thorough kind of forgiveness because he welcomes you back into your right mind and right with the facts in the world and right with what you've done and right in your heart and right in your spirit and then right in relationship with him. It is a beautiful gift. It is fantastic to be taken out of the muck and the mire. It's awesome to be cleansed and washed, but the forgiveness of God also then clothes and adorns you and welcomes you into fellowship with him. That is the pardon and the purification and the peace. Look, I'm not sitting here telling you you victimized a woman and murdered her husband. But I am telling you that every single one of us knows the lustful and violent hand and heart that is so easily in us. You may have not have victimized a woman and murdered her husband, but David's saying, if you've done it or if you've done worse, there is a place to go with it. And if you've done less, a place to find pardon and purification and peace. Forgiveness is that first part of what we call God's grace. God's grace is a a word we use around here a lot. Uh, We say that grace changes everything. It gives you that right kind of relationship and forgiveness with God. But grace is not just about the pardon and the purification and the peace of forgiveness. It's, it's how uh, forgiveness brings the power of God to live in, to, actu- to actuate into your lives. And so we talk about then, how does it play out? And in our passage today, there, there are kind of two ways I want to look at it. One is, what does it actually do? And then how was it done? And if you're asking what it actually does... Um, is that it, it, sorry, I looked up there and I realized that was in the wrong place. I'm not in the wrong place, they're in the wrong place, but we're good. Um, there it is, the second part, yeah. I never, you should never look up there because then you don't know what's going on. Y'all can be confused, but I don't need to be confused, but I'm back at it. Okay, so what does it do? Forgiveness, this is going to sound a little odd to you, forgiveness actually reconnects our scattered parts. Do I need to explain? Probably. It's infused in the psalm throughout, but it's, a, it's, it's a, a metaphorical, but it's about like reordering and reconnecting our parts. It's, um, uh, one of my favorite um, poets is Chance the Rapper, and he has a little phrase that says, my heart and tongue are fighting, my mind is undecided. It ain't like Trump and Biden, it's more like something private. What he's doing is exposing, which all of us have experienced, the distance and the difficulty with our hearts and our tongues. But the psalm includes, or includes not just your heart and your tongue, but also your hands, the acts that we do. So the heart and the hand and the tongue are reconnected in forgiveness. Now, the tongue, pretty easy, verse 14 and 15. Deliver me from my guiltiness, O God, God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, 
and my mouth will declare your praise. But it's also tied to verse 17. That was 14 and 15. Then you skip one and go to 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart that God will not despise. So there's this connection between the tongue and the heart. Forgiveness frees David's tongue from being tongue-tied to tongue-liberated. Forgiveness unstops our mouths because it has, it has uh, freed our hearts in beautiful ways. And so we giddily proclaim the mercy and, and beauty of, uh, of God, His grace, His forgiveness to the world and to our neighbors and even to ourselves. And then we great, gratefully proclaim God's kindness right back to Him in worship telling him all the stuff he's done and how grateful we are for it. So the, the tongue and the heart are to connected, but also the hand and the heart are connected, and that's what verses 16 and following are about. You don't delight in sacrifice. I'd do it. It was just the religious stuff I had to do. The sacrifices of God are that broken spirit and contrite heart, and you don't despise it, which means you love it. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings, whole burnt offerings and bulls, just all sorts of offerings. I want you to see the richness of these verses. David had spent the last eight to nine months going through the motions of religious practices. His hands were at the wheel of his religious duties. His heart was utterly disconnected from it, and so was his tongue, remaining silent about his sin and the glory of his God. So his hands weren't derelict, but they were disconnected to his heart. God doesn't want you to play act your devotional handiwork. He's not interested in that or the duties from the Christian life. And there are duties in the Christian life. He wants all of you and he wants all of you connected. He does want our obedience and our duty but he wants it so connected to our hearts and our tongues that, that, that that's the thing he delights in. God's mercy, his forgiveness, transforms our religious acts into a full-bodied expression. And so you could say that, surgically speaking, he reconnects the heart bone to the tongue bone to the hand bone. I did not take anatomy. But seriously, guys... 52 times a year, in this body, we have a confession and an assurance. And it is so easy to just mimic the words. But what we want to do is pray that God would actually meet us so that our tongues and our hearts and our hands or our acts would be stuck together. And that, and that, and that we would, if we find ourselves out of that place, we beg God to reconnect those things so that we don't mouth the words, but we cling to them in our hearts. That's the connection I'm talking about. So one last thing, and it is the most important. How is this forgiveness done? Forgiveness was accomplished by David's son. If you know anything about biblical history, it's not Absalom. His son, our Lord Jesus, the Christ, and it was done in love. Start with this love part. 
And let this psalm convince your heart, tongue, and hands that God has offered forgiveness to us all, born of his love. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. David just knows he needs the steady love of God and an incredible amount of mercy. And we do too. All I can say to this is that it was out of his love. It's out of the love of the Trinity where the Father sent the Son and the Son came willingly. And the Spirit enlivens our hearts because it's all about his love. His unwavering, steadfast mercy. Friends, we can never locate forgiveness in the quality of our confession or the sincerity of our contrition. We're not that good. We're too self-deceptive. We like to spin things. We like to cover up. We're just not that good at it to get an accurate reading. Even David in this, as authentic as it was, authenticity is not what brings forgiveness. We do not locate our forgiveness in our ability to repent well. We locate on our forgiveness in the character of God who loves to forgive people. That's where we locate it. And then, you don't have to bet on your ability to discern where you are. You can bet your whole life and eternity on the kindness of God in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he offers this love as a sacrificial love. It's so interesting in this passage where, where it talks about reinstituting the sacrifice in a full-bodied way. Well, it's, it's actually just reflective of the rest of the story where God's love is shown by his embodied sacrificial life for his people. Because his love is fully connected, whole-bodied. Because there's only been one completely righteous sacrifice in the history of Israel and the world. And it wasn't David's. It wasn't even David's after he wrote this psalm. It was the sacrifice of his greater son our Lord Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice. And in cahoots with the Father and the Spirit, He came to pardon and purify and make peace and reintegrate us with Himself and the world and ourselves. He came to accomplish our salvation, the forgiveness of our sin, and the power to renew us to our whole selves. As Hebrews says it a little bit later on, He entered Jesus once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of blood of goats or calves, but by the means of his own blood, and in so doing, secured an eternal redemption. If the blood and boats and goats were credited, uh, which were imperfect, how much more will the blood of Christ free us from our dead works and in to serving and loving the living God, Hebrews says. Uh, the method company had to shut down the website. There were too many confessions that were getting them into legal trouble. Method doesn't have the power to forgive sin. And by the way, nobody really sinned against method. 
There were confessions of adultery, of murder, in one case, even serial murder, abuse. Soap can't handle that kind of sin. But Jesus can. And even though David didn't know exactly who Jesus was, he knew who the character of God was. And he knew the promise that David's son eventually would reign. And he ran to him in the middle of his sin. Oh, over the past 20-some years I've been a pastor, I'd say 70 to 80% of my conversations are about forgiveness. Sometimes I'm trying to convince people they need it. Sometimes I'm trying to convince people they need to offer it. But just as many times, it's trying to convince people it's true. That you can believe it. That it's real. It is true that nothing gets better until we both admit and own our sin and embrace the love of Jesus, what Psalm 51 shows us, it's just as true that it really does get better because of the steadfast love of our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, show us your kindness that leads us to repentance. And then show us your power that leads to transformation. Give us the courage to repent where we need to. Most of all, give us the trust in you that you can cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that you can make wisdom in the secret places of our heart that we hide so many things. We beg you for this, Lord Jesus. Amen.